Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. Mike Dorico is a unique voice in this podcast. He's our guest today. He's a PhD candidate in the UCLA Department of Musicology and looks at music and technology both as a performer and researcher. Mike has a background in hip-hop, electronic dance music, popular music and technology, video games and multimedia art, and sound studies. Other projects include an ethnography of hip-hop and electronic dance music communities in L.A., sound design for the Rome Lab Virtual World Project, and an app called Notes, which is a music and multimedia annotation project. But from Boston to Los Angeles, he's also known as a DJ, drummer, and electronic musician for various experimental music acts. What is it that you're doing? What is it that you're excited about? Yeah, so I'm coming at it from a few different angles. So I'm a researcher, a designer, as well as a musician and a teacher. Um, And I'm currently working on a project uh, for my doctoral research called Interface Aesthetics. And this is looking at the ways in which the design of music software and interfaces influences composers and performers, uh, and really looking across a range of media. So not only in things like electronic dance music and hip-hop, but also in sound design, game design, as well as mobile app development. And you are here at the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music, correct? Yeah, I'm finishing my PhD in musicology right now. And where did you get your undergraduate degree? I was at the University of New Hampshire, and I got a degree in music education there. And then from there, I moved on to Tufts University in, in Boston, uh, where I got a master's in music and started to study a lot of the stuff that I'm researching about music interfaces and musical innovation as well there. So what got you engaged and interested in going from music education to being interested in the interface and more technical side of the world? Yeah, so I I had always wanted to be a a public music teacher, a public school music teacher. Uh, But then when I went through college, I realized I was more interested in maybe the the bigger picture of... of, um, of why I was a performer in the first place. So, and what you say performer, you perform using what instruments or voice or what is it you do? I, well, I started as a drummer, but uh, actually then I started um, in my undergrad, I started to compose electronic music. Uh, mostly I was influenced by people like John Cage and Pauline Oliveros, these early sort of avant-garde composers. But they were really some of the f- first people that I was interested in that were mixing media in performance. Um, and that aligned with a lot of the work I did as a hip-hop beat maker and a DJ. Let's back up a second. So the artists that you mentioned, what type of work do they do? Because not everyone's going to be familiar. Yeah, so they were, they were working in the 60s and really um, in, that, in that time where everyone was sort of experimenting with music. Um, but they were specifically interested in how new technologies could be used to sort of change conceptions of what people had always thought about music. So no longer was it just this thing that happened in the space of the concert hall, but these these composers and these performers were taking technology. They were bringing record players into you know loft parties and um, hosting public street performances with with new technology and media. So they were really negotiating a lot of these new technologies that were emerging and bringing them into the realm of music. So then you started studying that in your master's program and then decided to produce pr- pursue a doctorate in that as well. What has been your adventure so far? Yeah, well, um, I started to pursue the, the, my master's because I was actually performing as a, a hip-hop producer and DJ. 
And so that's where a lot of my research questions came from. I started to see all these new technologies that all my friends were, were using. And um, it was at this time where we were really transitioning from this turntable-based model of DJing, uh, which was based on the vinyl record. And we, were we started to have all these new interfaces that were button-based, grid-based. Uh, and it was also at the time that the iPhone was emerging. So with the advent of mo mobile media, this was really th sort of throwing a cog into how people would perform live. Uh, and it's still a question today in, in the DJing community, and that's where my research questions came from. So your research questions have been focusing on the cultural aspects then of these changes or the implications on the creative process or what? Yeah, so the implications on the creative process first and foremost, but then that leads me to the cultural questions because I've really found that the, the two are kind of linked. To the, so the, the formation of new cultures and aesthetics and, and even ethics of technological interaction are really negotiated by the performers and the producers as well as the designers who are making these tools. What do you mean by the ethics? So um, I think these these artists that I mentioned, like John Cage and Paulino Oliveros, these people in the 60s, I think they started to think about this. But what they were really concerned with fundamentally was new listening practices. Um, and part of this I see, um, there's this sort of ethos about technology that's that goes way back. And this is the idea of technology as as a, a an, ex, ex, an example of um, the human's control over nature, right? This is <laughs> a long-standing idea about what the purpose of technology. And I think that it hasn't somebody filtered through to music, this idea that we can sort of be in control of our performance environment and sort of have full mastery of these tools. Um, and so when I talk about the ethics, I'm, I'm interested in new interfaces because of the ways they disrupt this narrative of technology as this sort of uh, control or, and mastery over something else. Uh, and so I guess the, the example of where I see that happening now is in these very highly masculinized spaces like dubstep production or dance music production, where it's very much about the DJ as controller of the environment. Um, and so when I talk about ethics of interface design, I'm interested in the ways in which the design of these softwares and these interfaces can facilitate new sort of more relational ethical forms of interaction between audiences and performers as well as designers. So when you say masculine, you went right to control orientation, also gender usage, or also in terms of power, or uh, masculine is an interesting phrase to use there. Yeah, I think, I think because one thing about my research that I'm interested in now is the convergence of all these media. Um, and where I see that happening is in electronic dance music right now, because uh, a lot of different media platforms from gaming to music production, to action movies. They all use dubstep and electronic dance music as dominant idioms to kind of express the, the sensibilities of these um, media objects. And often this happens to be highly masculinized action heroes who are, you know, these uh, the James Bond stereotypes, right? Um, and they're very much these, these men who are sort of in control of their destiny, in control of their technologies, in control of... Um, feminine presence in their lives. And so, so that's, that's what I mean when I talk about the masculine aspect of the ethics of technological interaction. Interesting. So you are now toward the end of this doctoral journey. What are the things that you're seeing in innovation in music that is not just in your space that you're finding fascinating as you're thinking about your next adventure? I guess um, I, I do professional work in user experience design. Okay. And this is an interesting place where I see a lot of connections between musical interfaces and web or mobile app interfaces. 
uh, and it's really the sensibility of uh, actually it's it's a it's a, a tension between two sensibilities so on one side there's the interface designers who think that an interface should be as simple as possible as easy to use right and this is something that goes back to the mac pc debate mm -hmm. the history of computing right on one side there's the apple user the interface should be simple to use easy to navigate and on the other side, there's the idea that the interface should be hackable and customizable as much as possible. And so these two, um, these two sides of the debate about what an interface should be for a user uh, is really also what I'm trying to navigate both as a researcher and as a professional designer do, um, working in these industries. To, to explore it or just, I shouldn't say just, but to build the vocabulary so actually people will talk about it. Because actually, I don't. I, I hear it and I don't hear it a lot. I see, and I think it's Dan Schneiderman's work taking a look at wall ceiling floor. You know, okay, is it easy entry? What's the peak of what you can do with an interface, and what's the breadth of what you can bring into it? And you can come up with the different assumptions. You're coming at it with a whole nother set of layering about what that then means to be making it easy access or incredibly deep and broad. Yeah, exactly. That's the cultural layer is really what I'm bringing to it as a humanist researcher. I'm interested in not just the the materials of the technologies, but the, how those technologies have material consequences for the users. Um, and so, so that question about you know the open source versus the user friendly, those even those sensibilities have very um, political or ethical assumptions hidden behind them. Right, so this idea of something being open source assumes a certain level of technical knowledge in the user, right? And and that again, that often has to do with um, gendered relation, gender dynamics between um, in the history of computing. Um, so so that's that's another one of these layers that I talked about. But but user experience is a place where I see that um, those discussions happening more more often, or at least I think they should be happening more often. Another thing that we tend to look at in some of the work at the center and a lot of our conversations with companies right now is the fact that we're training the next generation of musicians, of people in using interfaces and people in using services and systems. What are you seeing in the expectations we're setting with people on what is an appropriate interface? What is normal? Uh, what is technology training that a musician should know now? I mean, it seems like it's getting to be that if I'm getting away from a standard guitar or keyboard, that I have big leaps to make. What are the assumptions we're making culturally about that? I know that's a much bigger question than I yeah. said I was going to ask. You've taken me definitely down the rabbit hole in thinking about interesting issues. Because, I mean, I would contest that we have a lot of organizations who are building things and assuming because they like it and it fits their needs and they are a combination of a technologist and a musician that, of course, other people should jump into it and like it, not realizing that they're making a bunch of assumptions about people. Yeah, exactly. That's, I think, in the design of the interface, that's exactly what you're doing is you're making these assumptions. And so, you know, this is a podcast on music and innovation. And to me, I'm very much of the mindset that the further you abstract an interface from a traditional model, the more useful it can be and the more innovative it can be. <clears throat> but this hasn't always been the case. So you think about something like the Moog versus the Buchla synthesizers, right? What made the Moog so successful was that he incorporated that keyboard into the interface where the Buchla had that ribbon controller, which was a little too abstract for a lot of the users. But I think now we're at a, we're at a stage where a lot of the people using these technologies, a lot of younger people who are much more digital natives, um, these things, even though they may seem abstract and non-traditional in terms of traditional musical interfaces like a keyboard 
or a drum set or some or a guitar fretboard for example um they're becoming actually much more natural to these people who are used to interacting with technology on small screens where the interfaces have to be more abstract. And you were commenting there was a class that you had taught that uh, was on, that you had a student that was trying to mash a thermon with a leap motion. What was that class that you were teaching? It sounded intriguing. Yeah, so I taught a course called Computational Thinking in the Arts, and this was uh, an interdisciplinary humanities course. So I had students coming from neuroscience, math, English, music, all over all over campus uh, but for the final project of this class I asked students to build their own digital project and I I left it pretty broad but I asked them to kind of try to engage with some sort of discussion that was happening in their fields and that might be useful to them so I had one student who was in neuroscience and she ended up leading an augmented reality lab to develop wearable technologies for medical diagnosis for example using Arduino sensors and Raspberry Pis um, so that was a great project. But then the theremin interface, this was another student, I think um, he was in English, uh, where he integrated a patch in Pure Data, which is a music software, with um, a processing, which is a programming language, to integrate the Leap Motion controller. So he basically built uh, an alternative theremin interface where he has the Leap Motion controller sitting on a table. Can you, and, I, can you tell folks who don't know what a Leap is? Yeah, so the Leap is um, it's a motion controller. So you plug it into your computer through a USB port, and it's just this tiny little, you know, business ca- card size thing. That I you... always think it looks like a cigarette lighter. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's tiny. <laughs> it's tiny. Um, but it sends out um, sensors, just virtual infrared sensors, that as you move your hand over it, you can actually control a, a computer. And you control control anything. You control um, the tracker of the mouse pad. You can control software applications that you're using. But the unique thing that the student did, he actually uh, developed this interface using these programming languages where he could control sounds and pitches using his hand, um, which was really what the original theremin did. So I thought it was an interesting way to kind of mix old and new media together. And that sounds like a lot of what your heart space is, really taking a look at where you can not just look at interfaces, but the real creative and cultural elements underneath of it. Yeah, yeah, because I'm I'm very interested in the the relationship between uh, previous technologies, previous instruments and technologies for music production, and how new technologies really uh, disrupt but also help shape uh, those those existing practices. And that's where I see the political tensions come in, right? Because the minute you develop this alternative interface that doesn't look like a guitar, but people are using it in rock bands, then that's going to throw a cog into... Uh, that whole machine that's defined a lot of what rock music means to people or what electronic music means to people or what music in general means. I mean, isn't that what innovation then is? Taking something that is different and and then it rippling through all of the other implications. Yeah, exactly. I think think innovation at at the heart of it is critique. And that's why I think, uh, that's why I think as a researcher, as a humanist, I think that's why it's important to think about these things. Because that's what we do, uh, or that's what I do fundamentally, is critique existing um, cultural values, practices, um, cultural formations, institutional formations. So I always think the best innovators are the ones who are who are doing something where nobody wants them to really succeed, because they don't want thing to, things to change that drastically. And again, going back to these avant-garde artists like John Cage and Pauline Oliveros, that's exactly what they were doing. They were disrupting the entire institution of what people thought music was at the time through these innovations with music and technology. Have you ever gone to the Metropolitan Museum of Art's um, Historical Instrument Archive? 
No, but that's definitely on the list for my it, research. You can you can see it online too. They've okay. got uh, images, and and I was fascinated as someone who's been playing traditional instruments for most of my whole life, and I'm not a young pup like you are, and to see instruments as they've been negotiated. So you can see as we got to the modern tuba, as we got to the modern trumpet, as we got to the modern clarinet, where we've gotten into much more standard instrumentation a lot, you can see an entire history of how we've sort of negotiated through production and through composition what instruments are. So we tend to think nowadays, well, that is X instrument, or uh, that might be an interesting uh, sidebar instrument that I might want to have as something fun to play with, but that's not going to be something I'm going to core compose with. So it really is a negotiation. To me, that's what's interesting with the new technologies of all of this, is we're trying to convince other people to produce around this new space and technology, which, so I appreciate your space of what oh, you're yeah, doing a lot. Oh, yeah, of course. What are you seeing as the challenges? We talked about the fact that we're, it's renegotiation, it's uh, critique, what are the challenges in being an innovator and being so far out there in some of these cases as a creator, as a, as a designer? Yeah, well, like I said, I think if you're, if you're being a true innovator where you're kind of critiquing existing practices and existing institutional structures, you're always going against the grain. You're always working against um, what people are expecting you to do in a lot of ways. Um, so that's the that's the biggest challenge. But I think where that where it also pans out is that um, you're also navigating all these technological changes. So as all these technologies and media's are start are converging with each other, you start to have to as an innovator you start to have to navigate all those spaces. So you have to, you're not just learning um, uh, you're not just learning about new musical technologies, but you you all of a sudden have to think like a game designer or a sound designer or an app developer. Um, in order to really understand how you can contribute to these changing pl practices and platforms. So it gets to be then communities of practice around new directions? Or how do you work as an individual in this changing space? Or can you maybe give examples of companies or entities that you're seeing doing this? Yeah, so so I would say it's it's increasingly difficult to do it as an individual. I think you really have to work with a team or at least work, you're constantly networking with companies or artists or performers in order to really think through um, how innovation works. So for me, I always say um, innovation can't really work without an, an integrated relationship between the designers and the users. So, And that's where I see um, the innovative, especially music software companies that are doing interesting things with interfaces. Who might be that? Who, who would you say is in that bucket? I would say Ableton Live, uh, most importantly because uh, of their link technology that they recently developed. So this is a technology that basically syncs wirelessly various devices together. So you can basically have jam sessions um, with where someone's using a mobile phone, someone has their laptop, um, and they're using different software, different apps, but they're synced up so they can um, they can perform together basically. And that was a, that's been a big struggle. I think um, it's something that artists have always wanted. But there was just that one missing link, and that's what that's what they are producing now. Um, another another company is Native Instruments, and I think the reason they're so important is because can you, can you explain who and what they are for people who don't know? Yeah, well, so both Ableton and Native Instruments are music software companies. They develop interfaces for music production, like digital audio workstation software. Um, Native Instruments, more specifically, does um, software for DJing, so live performance and DJing. Uh, they're both located out of both Berlin and Los Angeles. Uh, but 
but the thing that that's interesting about both of them is that they both incorporate performers in the design process and they have artists that are that are integral to the design of the instruments that are being sold and used and i think that's why they've become picked up so much is because they actually have that very uh inherently linked connection between the designers and the users uh, which isn't always the case with with a lot of software so what do you think the next innovations are that are coming down the pike well, what, what do you feel is happening? What are you seeing is happening in your research? Where do you see the next combinations might be? I would say, I mean, maybe it sounds a bit obvious, but the wearable technology movement and um, sensor-based uh, performance, I'd like to see that, that be the next place where people go. Um, because again, I can see where this could be a more, um, this could be a space that, that integrates a lot of different artistic communities. So all of a sudden, I think you'd have interest um, in sound artists and installation artists working with composers and producers much more um, concretely and directly. Uh, but what I think needs to happen with that is, is first of all, I think the, the technologies need to become a little more, uh, I guess to, to use the phrase earlier, user-friendly to musicians. Um, I think right now they exist as great novelties and, and in some ways, I, maybe gimmicks in some ways, but they haven't reached that spot where they're integrating um, the design and use process. So they don't have the performers and the artists really on board to kind of tell the designers how, art, how musicians specifically could use this in their performances. And that's what I think they need in order to, for it to get picked up more fully. We're recording right now in the new Austin recording studio here at um, UCLA, Herb Alpert School of Music. And we're having some of those same questions, even in the design of this space, is we have a very traditional, gorgeous, I love this space, it even smells good. Um, we have this great new space, but what is, what's the technologies that need to be in it to be then a modern recording studio other than just capturing of music? So we're actually ask, asking some of those questions and looking if there's people who could actually come in and play with us on those questions here in this space. But what it, what are the elements that you could do for recording in a sound studio, in a live venue, in all sorts of different avenues, and then make it, I, should, I was going to say digestible, that's not the right word, but engageable and enriching and inspirational for the musicians who work with it, other than needing kind of a, a translator into it, you know, Lieutenant Uhura. Uh, for understanding how the technology works. It's, a, it's an interesting question right now as things get more complex and more fluid as what you can do. Yeah, that's, it's a great question. I, I mean, from my perspective, it, uh, there's an article that this uh, ethnomusicologist wrote, uh, Elliot Bates, he wrote this article called What Studios Do. Mm -hmm. And this is really looking at the social life of the recording studio and how it functions as a cultural space. And I think all studios... Um, need to really become a space that's welcoming, a welcoming space. You know, traditionally studios have always been designed to have these glass walls and, and these spaces that are, that are segmented and they, 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 um, they separate the, the uh, recording artists and the, the engineers and the performers. And I mean, I understand there's practical ways to do that. Um, but I think as much as you can turn a recording studio into this welcoming environment that feels sort of more like a, um, uh, I don't know, always... The studios I've always felt more comfortable in, or it feels like you're in a living room, just kind of hanging out as you're <laughs> you're recording. Um, so that's one thing is kind of like really conceptualizing what the social space that you want to create and mm -hmm. how you want to invite people into that space. But technologically, I also think there needs to be um, very easy to use and practical monitoring situations. 
Um, this is both for the stage and the studio. So make the people recording, there needs to be a, a direct connection between the engineers and the artists so it doesn't feel like there's that disconnect, right? So they can hear what they're doing and there's real-time feedback. I mean, typically we have, you know, just the button that kind of translates between the two rooms, but uh, thinking through monitoring situations is always an important uh, aspect of that. I'm going to go backwards in a conversation or two here. So talking about the iPhone and how that changes expectations and what people have in front of them, I kind of feel like sometimes we dumb things down and then open up opportunities because we dumb things down. How much has having the smartphones as such a core piece of people's environment impacting our expectations on what we should be doing on creating and sharing music? Yeah, so... There was a recent app that was put out called Easy Music, uh, and to me, this is sort of the uh, apex of what uh, music apps are designed to do, right? They're sort of meant to democratize the process of music making, and obviously this app was designed as a, a children's tool, but I think it says a lot about how uh, we should be conceptualizing the design of apps in general. Um, because what it does is it, it takes the idea of the app as not just a tool, but actually a game and more of like an experience. So a lot of these apps for music making are actually integrating that, that this sort of gaming logic with a music production logic. And I think what that does, it, it does uh, on one hand abstract the interfaces because in order to, to, to lower that learning curve, we don't want to have things looking like a keyboard or a guitar necessarily. Um, we might have them looking like shapes that are manipulatable and interactive with each other. Each other. Um, and so you talk about that as, you know, the, the danger here or the, the perceived danger is maybe dumbing things down. But I think you're right, it, that actually ends up opening up more spaces because by, by thinking of the app as a game and as much more of an interactive experience, that's where you open up spaces of innovation for the performer because it forces them to think in a nonlinear way about music. And have it at their fingertips, too. I think of so many performers I know who now have all their various cheat sheets for music that's sitting on their phone quietly on the thing while they're while they're playing a gig. Exactly. Um, or, or their tablet or whatever their device they have. Well, we've covered directly and indirectly a lot of things we like to talk about on this podcast. Um, what are companies that you see that you are excited about and work through doing? You talked about a couple of the ones on the um, recording side. Anything else that you're really excited about that you're seeing in your work? I would say um, one space that I'm really interested in are the uh, the game labs. Um, so, so the UCLA game lab, the USC game lab, because um, these spaces you wouldn't think that they would be spaces where um, where musicians are necessarily um, catering their work to, but actually that's where I, I end up seeing a lot of the most interesting innovations happening. So at the UCLA game lab, for example, there's an artist, uh, Kitten Janae. Uh, and she does work with Unity 3D, which is a game engine. And so it's this 3D game software, um, but she uses it as a music visualization tool. So she's a, um, a, vis a VJ, sort of like a, a visual DJ. Um, and she does visuals for people in the low-end theory scene, which is um, this sort of experimental hip-hop community in Los Angeles. Um, so basically she takes these 3D models and manipulates them in real time using this game software to react to music that's happening live. And so that's a space where I see really like um, all the things I've talked about, the, the convergence of these various media, the, the integration of gaming with music production, it's all happening in, in these types of spaces. Are you looking at anything in VR, AR right now in augmented reality and virtual reality? Yeah, so actually that same, uh, that same artist I just mentioned, um, 
she's done great work with Ocu uh, working with the Oculus, so building music visualization tools where they're basically, you know, you think of like an iTunes visualizer or, you know, something like that. Um, and she's basically creating much more interactive sort of 3D worlds that, that um, as, you're, as you're wearing the goggles, you're kind of taken through this space while listening to music. So it's sort of a new way of, of listening to music and, and also visualizing music. Um, and I'd like to see more uh, more support for the Google Cardboard type apps because it's just like the the difference between that three dollar those three dollar lens and you know a couple hundred dollars for the for the headsets for five ninety nine or whatever the price is coming out at right now. Yeah, I think to be able to just have the Google Cardboard with your phone uh, that automatically um, makes it so much more accessible to so many people. And with a good headset. Yeah, right. <laughs> the sound quality of that makes such a big difference. Yeah. Anything else you'd want to share with us to wrap up? But you have a really interesting point of view that you're coming in with, and hopefully we'll see you doing some exciting work in whatever stages you are next. I know you're in the decision points on that right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, what else would you want us to think about about music and innovation to kind of close out the conversation? Well, I think I think what you're doing is great. I think the outreach that you're doing with something like this podcast, uh, I'd really just like to see, from my own perspective, you know, really starting this conversation between teachers, educators, uh, industry professionals, and performers. I think that's where, again, that's where I see innovation happening is when you have a very integrated relationship between those various bodies. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with it in the future. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today, and thank you guys for joining us for the podcast. More adventures to follow. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this podcast. Many thanks to the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation for being our hosts of this ongoing series. You can subscribe to us in all the usual places, or you can come find us at innovation.schoolofmusic.ucla.com. Edu. Join us again to follow the other adventures that we will be tracking down in innovating music. Thanks again.